Welcome to our show. My name is Samba Yonga, and I'm the producer and voice artist on the Leading Ladies podcast, a podcast on historical African women. And I'm also the co-founder of the Women's History Museum of Zambia. This is a House of African Feminisms episode under the Gender Justice series. As part of a discussion on gender justice in our Zambian pre-colonial context, I will be talking to writer of the Leading Lady Stories and co-founder of the Women's History Museum, Mlenga Kapuyapwe. I will allow Mlenga to introduce herself. My name is Mulenga Kapwepwe. I'm a co-founder of the Women's History Museum of Zambia. And um, I think for us at the museum, um, part of our work is not only just kind of regurgitating <laughs> theories and concepts that we see or we have been taught from the West, but really looking um, at how our own societies were organized, looking through our own lens um, not running to frameworks and concepts, you know, that are passed down from, you know, Western society, which is necessary because I think the root of Western feminism is very different from, you know, what we need to use to analyze our own feminism. You know, there's there's all sorts of different types of feminism. And for us at the museum, we are quite happy to come up with another form. <laughs> Uh, which will answer to 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 the lens through which Africa can be looked at. Africa is not patriarchal, hundred percent. It is also matriarchal. A lot of it is matriarchal, as opposed to patriarchal. But the patriarchal side of Africa is always the one that that is taken as though it's that is all of Africa. So I think at the museum, what we're trying to do is is start narratives and conversations around what is African feminism. Is it what We've now been told it is. Uh, can we continue that conversation? Can we look at other aspects of how African societies were organized, where power lay, how power was shared, how it was transmitted, so that we start actually thinking about, oh, how did women actually get their power? Where did it reside? In the episode, you will hear stories of a few of the characters of the leading ladies played and then we will discuss how gender justice has always been a part of our culture and history as Zambians. The first character is Vyadyango. Let's have a listen. The assumption is that in our past, women have taken second place as leaders. In fact, women have been prominent leaders of state for centuries. This is the story of Vyadyango. Southern province, 18th century, the head of state. Around 18th century, Vediango was the original ruler of the kingdom where present-day Livingston is. She ruled the Leia people. The Leia and Toka lived in the area surrounding Shungunamutitima, or Mosotunia, later renamed Victoria Falls. Bediango was known as the matriarch of the mystical waterfalls. During her rule, Bediango and her people were invaded and conquered by Chief Mokoni. She was faced with the dilemma of ensuring the important aspects of her people's rights and sovereignty were not lost. 
she brokered a peace treaty with the invading chief Mukuni and convinced him that they should be co-rulers. Her skillful handling of the invaders left her people with many rights and powers to the land, justice, and to most political decisions in regards to leadership. Bediango co-ruled with Chief Mukuni and led certain rituals that continued to signify and ensure her own power in the Tokalea political relationship. Bediango's peace treaty still stands today, and every Tokalea village is co-ruled by a man and a woman. Women have been prominent leaders of nations in the past. Pamelenga, why is Vejango a great example of gender justice or gender equality in African history or Zambian history? Bediango, I think, is a good example of defining the whole concept of feminism, in a sense, because I think um, some of the more well-known definitions of feminism is that it is a movement that seeks to raise women's political, economic, and social status and fight for gender equality in all aspects of life in all societies. And I think Bediango actually put that into practice. Um, when the invading army of Mukuni came in, led by Mukuni, who was a man, I think she actually ensured that the level of women's political, economic, and social status remained high because she negotiated for that gender equality, especially in leadership. But also, if you understood the way that the kingdom is run, even today, when the male ruler, Mukuni, leaves the area of the Tokalea chiefdom, he has to hand his power over to her. But when she leaves the area, she doesn't have to hand her power to him. So that negotiation uh, really, I think for me, is the definition of how women, especially in our history, negotiated for all these aspects of, of, of uh, social, political, and economic life for women in their leadership and in their person and ensure that it was actually in perpetuity. Because even today, in the Tokalea chiefdom, you still see a man and a woman ruling together and the rights of women and men because African feminism also talks about the fact that neither gender should be oppressed. Um, so the fact that a man and a woman rule together means that both genders are going to be protected. So for me, Bediang was kind of the, the, the one of the best examples of explaining African feminism and feminism in its essence. That's really, really interesting. And how did our communities know that gender justice is important? Because if you read the history of gender injustice, it now needed to be taught that discrimination is bad or don't treat women like that. But our African communities knew as a practice that gender justice is important. I think when you go back to the way that humanity was structured, if you want, which is going back to how our communities existed, the gender roles, which now have kind of been weighted by judgment and this one is more valuable than the other or whatever. When your survival is linked to, to the land, to your strength, to whatever, it's, it's extremely easy to see that each gender is valuable. And therefore, 
to start saying this one is more valuable than the other did not even happen because we knew that this gender is valuable when it comes to war or when it comes to cutting trees or whatever the thing is. This gender excels when it comes to collecting firewood, whatever it was. But those things didn't make the genders unequal. N nobody was valued above the other because if you valued one gender above the other, it meant that one gender couldn't play its role and the roles were actually equal and they needed to be played because for us the genders and the gender roles are complementary and when you're complementary the complementarity of genders is really at the root of everything the fact that each gender needs the other it needed the other in in the old way of the economy and society and all that it was so obvious that each gender needed the other that you couldn't degrade the other one because otherwise then there's an imbalance and the whole society is out of balance so uh, for us it wasn't about really even teaching I think it was a felt and seen need that there has to be a consideration of how the genders actually live together and I think that's why African feminism stresses more the fact that neither gender should be oppressed whereas western feminism is more about women mustn't be oppressed by men. And, you know, there's, there's that kind of dichotomy there. But African feminism is more about all the genders must coexist. And that's it. Um, so I think that major difference is reflected very much in the, the organization of our societies and uh, the connection to survival of those societies. The assumption is that in our past, women have had no role in peacemaking. In reality, evidence from history shows women have been peacemakers. Meet Najduti, Luapula province, 18th century, the peacemaker. The Shila, under the leadership of Nkuba I, reached the Bangweulu swamps and became the Shila Katia, the real fisher folk. By the mid-18th century, Nkuba Nsenshi was the fourth Nkuba to succeed the Shila throne, and he lived at Chisenga with his sister Nachituti. At this time, the Lunda under Mwatakanyembompemba I, Kazembe II, invaded Shila country with a view to conquest. The Shila organized themselves into a resistance against the Lunda, led by Chief Katele and his sister, Nakabutula. When Mwata Ilunga Lukwesa Kazembe III succeeded to the Lunda throne in 1760, he captured and killed Katele. Even though Katele was killed, Shila resistance continued under the leadership of his sister, Nakabutula. It was during this turmoil, Nachituti discovered her brother Nkuba IV had murdered her son. Nachituti wanted to avenge her son's death, but she also wanted peace for her people. To bring about peace, Nachituti met with Mwata Ilunga Lukwesa Kazembe III, and in a dramatic political challenge, as was custom, Nachituti took off her loincloth and dared Mwata Ilunga Lukwesa to assassinate Nkuba IV. Nachituti vowed that he would be repaid for the action. Soon after, Mwata Ilunga Lukwesa captured and killed Nkuba IV. Nachituti kept her word. 
Before a great assembly of the Lunda and Shila people, she placed a basket of soil and a pot of water at Mwatakazembe Lukwesa's feet. This symbolized the non-negotiable Shila ritual authority over the land, water, and other natural resources, but offered the Lunda invaders political authority while maintaining Shila sovereignty. From that day, the war between the Lunda and the Shila was over, and they each maintained power. Nachituti was given a praise name and thereafter called Nachituti Uawishe Ulunda, meaning Nachituti, the one who made it possible for the Lunda to settle peacefully in Shila country. Till today, Nachituti's treaty is enacted at the Mutomboka ceremony by the current Mwatakazembe and the current Nachituti. Women have been peacemakers. One of the things I liked about the story is that it's obvious that women were given the authority of constituting justice because of or despite their gender. How did this come about? I think the, this this particular story, I think, is very interesting in the sense that, one, it illustrates how even brother and sister could actually, you know, hold hands and lead uh, rebellion or war or whatever. And uh, it wasn't about my brother will lead or whatever it is. The two led together, male and female. They led that uh, rebellion or resistance together. And you can see, therefore, that women didn't have to be given permission <laughs> in their own political, uh, the, the, the political affairs of their of their country. And people did not object to women taking the lead because even after Katele was assassinated, his sister continued with the, the resistance and she led the resistance. So there was uh, an acceptance of female leadership without, you know, without um, a question. So therefore, the brother-sister, male-female leadership was something that was accepted. And I think it's also um, something that is not uh, very much written about, perhaps, the sharing of power, you know, between the genders was not uh, unique. <laughs> it was accepted. And, um, you know, when Nachituti comes into the story, I think what is interesting there is that she actually uses a female signal to literally convince and force um, the king of the, of the Lunda to go and do her bidding. But she does it by using her undergarments, which <laughs> which had their own power, you know, in that time, because a woman's undergarments had its own power. And, and she uses that power to convince a chief to go and wage war with, um, with Nkuba IV. So there's a lot there, because I think in the Western sense, there's sometimes not much understanding where female power actually lay in our societies. It wasn't in speeches and in, you know, whatever. Even the undergarment of a woman had power, its own power to persuade the top power to do its bidding. So that for me is a very interesting aspect because I think we miss where women held their power because we tend to look at the same 
sports where Western power resides and the power of, uh, you know, the African feminist can reside in a very different place. And I think we haven't shown the spotlight on those places where women held their power. They might have looked very helpless, but that one single bead around their waist had more power than a king. So we need, I think, to do a little bit more of, of that research. But I think that story kind of illustrates where power resided as well and where that power could broker a treaty that is still demonstrated today when the Shila and the Lunda meet in, in their traditional celebration. So for me, I think uh, we have not focused or seen the power of one, even the, the relationship between brother and sister. For us, that, that was a power play as well. One gave power to the other. And if the two were rulers, then it meant that that power was very shared, could be shared without, you know, without uh, anybody fighting for the power. So there's, a, there's many little aspects in this story for me, which, which kind of also looks at some of the, you know, the aspects of Western feminism and it's the difference where I think African feminism should be also analyzing and looking and saying, well, this is, you know, this is, this is also a place of power. This was also a source of power. This was actually power. Um, this was the source of leadership because the source of leadership might be a bracelet. So we need to start examining those. We, we are still kind of too much in the framework of Western feminism and looking at what that looks like and what then it looks like in African feminism. The assumption in our past is that women have had no impact on our geopolitical history. In reality, women have been quite influential on the geopolitical landscape of our country. Like Luejiwang Konde, Northwestern, 17th century, the politician. Luweju was the daughter of Mwata Ialamwaku, a descendant of Queen Kenga Naweji. Mwata Ialamwaku had six children, three boys and three girls. Luweju was the sixth daughter of the king. She ruled the Lunda Federation of Tubungo in the 1650s from her capital at Kasala Katoki. She came to be the ruler after Mwata Ialamwaku had an altercation with his sons. He then appointed Luweju Wankonde as his successor, Oswana Mulunda, and gave her the Lucano bracelet, a sign of authority over all the Lunda Tuwungo. The brothers, unhappy to have been skipped over for their sister, created tensions across the kingdom. To manage the crisis, the elders advised Luweji to strengthen her position by quickly finding a husband to provide an heir to succeed her. Luweji met Chiwinda Ilunga, hunter, prince, son and heir to Mutombu Mukulu Milikulue of the Luba. He assured her of military and political support to stabilize the country and Luweji married him. Ilunga took over as ruler of the Lunda by taking charge of Luweji's Lucano bracelet. But when he became too tyrannical and cruel to her people, Luweji removed him. Ilunga was taken back to their place of meeting and never seen again. While Ilunga ruled, with permission from Luweji, many people left the kingdom, including her brothers, aunts, and uncles. 
the rain resulted in the migration of various groups who became the Lunda, Luchaji, Luena, Luvale, and Chokwe. It also included the Ndembu, Mbelwa, Samba, Mununga, and the Mbunda people of today's northwestern province of Zambia and adjacent areas in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Namibia, and Angola. These groups have now become most of the population of northwestern province. Lueji weathered the turbulence of her rule and continued to reign as a beloved queen of the Lunda after Ilunga was deposed. Women have impacted Zambia's geopolitical history. For this story of Lueji, it feels like uh, this whole idea of power and how a lot of the symbols of power were held by women in ideologies or objects that were not common to the West is intriguing. Maybe you can talk a little about that. The Luweji story for me, I think, also points to, you know, we're talking about the symbols of power and where power emanated from in our traditional societies and how that power could be um, handed to someone else and how then, whether male or female, that person became the absolute holder of that power, regardless. And so in the story... Luweji is given the Lucano bracelet, which was the symbol of power of the Lunda, um, um, ahead of her brothers, her older brothers. She was the sixth child and female, but her father decided that those three brothers would not make good leaders, and she would. So it was not uh, usual for a king to appoint his own successor, but because he was so worried about the fact that he saw that his sons were not capable, they wouldn't become capable rulers, and his daughter would be, he broke protocol and gave the power to his daughter. And um, she ruled um, until her death. Nobody questioned. There was turbulence because, of course, the brothers were resentful that she had been given the, the, the power. But I don't think that they would have, for one moment, thought of taking the Lucano from her, from taking... They, they would not. She had to go through the whole queenship until her death. And then, you know, they, they would have been able to take that Lucano bracelet because that's, that, that was a symbol of, of power for the, for the Lunda. So even some of those symbols, you know, that we, we, we tend to overlook were, were very much part of power, the passage of power from one era, from one, you know, kingdom or kingship to the next and in this instance, in this story, it demonstrates that ultimately the most capable person was the one that was appointed to rule, not based on gender, but on capability. And so for me, I think the story illustrates that if necessary, protocol could even be broken and the gender barrier did not even matter, the capable person was chosen to rule. So for me, the Luigi Wankonde story just illustrates that what people actually had were surprised that was simply that uh, the chief of the of the Lundas appointed someone before he died, but not that he appointed his daughter. So, you know, that gives you an idea of, of how people were accepting of female leadership. And female leadership was not an extraordinary thing. It was something that people, as long as the power was given and the symbols were exchanged to that gender, it didn't matter. That person now had the power. And that is the story of Luigi 
um, I think that illustrates the fact that it didn't matter about the gender. What mattered was the capability of that person to rule. This is the story of the feminist, Chukuku, Lusaka province, 19th century. The Soli migrated from the north, led by a woman by the name of Chisanka, and settled at a place called Winjimfumu. When Chisanka died, her granddaughter Chikuku took the throne. Chikuku ruled over the Soli people of present-day Lusaka province. For some years, she ruled her people from Winjimfumu, before she moved her capital to the Chisamba area. There she married Mukuni of the Lenje, bearing him a son, Vimbe I. When he came of age, Vimbe I forced his father Mukuni off the throne and out of the area and began to rule. When Vimbe I died, Chikuku appointed his sister Chinyama to succeed him, and this daughter began to rule the Lenje Mukuni. Chinyama's reign was a turbulent one, as the Chikunda from Luangwa repeatedly attacked the Soli. For five years, the mother-daughter alliance ruled the Soli and fought the Chikunda. The Soli were finally defeated. Chikuku remarried this time to the younger brother of Chief Muyobe and bore another son, Vimbe II. He succeeded Chinyama. But Chikuku's other daughter, Chintala, organized an uprising against him, and he was assassinated and she took over. When Chintala died, her sister Kayoshia's firstborn took over and became Komesha I. All her life, Chikuku ensured that solely political power remained vested in female hands. Since then, all Soli leaders have been women. By 1889, Mukanda Komesha, was the only leader, a chieftainess who was acknowledged by all branches of the Soli. Women have been pioneering feminists. In a sense, this is a story more about power and positioning and how this leader was able to position female leaders so that it can be long-lasting. Maybe you can speak to that as well. Um, yes, because I think um, the picture that is often painted about you know, African women and their existence throughout history is that there's this whole patriarchal the patriarchy and they were oppressed by male leaders and they had no say and all that kind of stuff. And I think this is this is an illustration of how, and it's not only the Soli, but how in a lot of the of, the, of our ethnic groups, women carved out their own power position, and a lot of the chieftaincies, quite a number of chieftaincies, can only be inherited by women. So they are only women who rule in those chieftaincies. And I think this was a, a power play, if you want, by, by women of the, of the past to ensure that they had the power, that they had a position of power. And when you listen to the Soli version of this story, you, you do come to understand that all the other chiefs, and a lot of them were male, were all subordinate to Nkomisha who was the female uh, ruler of the Soli. And up to today, it is Nkomesha, a female ruler who still rules the Soli. So that position has been, was claimed, 
created by women and is still held by women today. So one of the things that women did from the past was actually ensure that there were certain positions in their societies which were held by them. And I think that ensured a balance of power. Um, the interesting thing about, I think, also that power arrangement that um, you see in a lot of our ethnic groups, uh, which I think sometimes doesn't come out in the in the Western analysis, is that oftentimes if the the king, the chief, or the you know the ruler of a particular ethnic group can only be male, then the kingmakers are female. So whether you go to the Lamba, whether you go to the Bemba, whether you go to... It's the females who put the king on the throne. And that is a different and equal power to whoever is in the seat. Because they know they, they cannot be in that seat without the female power that put them there. So for our in our tradition, that was a sharing of power. Where one power puts the other one into the throne, the other one can rule. But only at the pleasure of the other power. So it, it equalizes um, the power equation, if you want. And so there was that arrangement, but there was also the arrangement where women just negotiated their own rule, their own chieftaincy, and that chieftaincy would belong only to women. And there's many instances uh, of that. Uh, in fact, a lot of that was turned upside down when the colonials arrived from patriarchal England. <laughs> and um, a lot of the female um, chiefs were not recognized by the British uh, when, the, when the British administration took over the country as a, as a colonial territory. And therefore, you even find that a lot of the power that women had in placing the men in places of power was taken away because now that power was now vested in some government gazette that some British administrator <laughs> now, you know, wrote out and said, now you're a chief, you're not, and whatever. So destroyed a lot of that in terms of the power that women actually had in terms of, of leadership, of deciding, you know, the, the socioeconomic um, sharing, the, the execution and implementation of justice and so forth. That power sharing that had been there before because of the way the power centers were structured was suddenly lost. And sometimes I think it's irritating for me anyway that so much uh, of feminism and even African feminism is only looked at through the lens of patriarchy when in fact, even in this country, 80% of the ethnic groups here looked at life through the lens of matriarchy. So, you know, the whole analysis for me is a little lopsided because not every African society is patriarchal. Some are, some are not. And I think we should be giving equal analysis to both of those types um, of social arrangement. But we tend to just think, oh, yeah, these women were oppressed uh, and, you know, patriarchal societies exist in Africa and the whole Africa is, in fact, the whole patriarchal arrangement for especially this country came with the British. So I think we should also start examining some of those things and actually analyzing them from, from the sense of what was the actual social arrangement here. Not because there's patriarchy in the West and somehow, oh, that must be the thing. And you don't even look at what power the women actually had. Oh, but in that, in that society, the women don't rule. Yeah, but they make the kings. And sometimes the power behind the throne is much more powerful than the power on the throne. 
So there's so much more to do in terms of, I think, expanding the concept of African feminism. I think we have to relook uh, some of the concepts that are being, um, and move away from the danger of taking Western frameworks and imposing them on African uh, societies and, and the way we saw power, shared it, located it, dressed it. We have to start looking at those things in a different way. Pamelenga, this has been a great episode. I love that we unpacked the stories and gave some insight into the indigenous knowledge systems that existed and how it impacted gender justice and equality before colonialism in Zambia or Africa. Thank you everyone for listening. For more information, please visit the Women's History Museum on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and our website, www.whmzambia.org. This podcast episode was made possible with the support from House of African Feminisms. It was produced by Sambayonga. Our guest feature was Mulenga Kapwepwe. Our technical producer was Ian Chitundu. And it was executive produced by House of African Feminisms and the Women's History Museum of Zambia.